millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of books on the Western canon. My name is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing? Hey, uh, very good. And uh, I, I just realized the, the mistaken scope of our project as soon as you said what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, where would we be without ambition? Happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a this is an intermittent podcast, uh, probably monthly, maybe less, maybe more. Who knows? But it's kind of a, a <clears throat> I guess, a personal book club between the two of us yeah. uh, to try to examine, um, I guess, what would be considered classical lit, uh, to think through it, talk about it, have fun with it, so on and so forth. Um, the the parameters are pretty much the the parameters set by Harold Bloom's Western Canon, which is a very strange, weird book that we both read and are going to discuss today. Yeah, um, yeah I guess to, to start off, Daniel, could you uh, give us a brief description of what this thing is, how it operates, what's going on? Yeah, sure. Um, and I guess just to uh, provide some some slight context and background for myself, I am I am mostly an avid uh, amateur and, uh, and autodidact. I think before we were recording, that term came up and I think that's very, that's very uh, applicable. Um, but I'm the kind of person who has read the summaries of a lot of these works, but not actually grappled with them. So I, that's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to that. But the, the actual, the actual book, The Western Canon by, by Harold Bloom and the, yeah, I, it's it's hard to know where to begin because you're right it it is a strange work and it's strange that a work about the what we might call boilerplate great literature of the particular cultural tradition which you and I you know are both uh you know part and parcel of being uh Americans here in the 21st century um it, it's it's odd that a book about the the old standards should be so strange but <laughs> But that's also the argument that Mr. Bloom makes for inclusion in this canon is a kind of, uh, uncanny strangeness. And, and I'd never thought about it that way before. That's, I'm going to be saying that a lot. <laughs> I think throughout this whole project. <laughs> oh, I've never thought about that before. Um, but, but, uh, but I think he's right. And it, he's, he's an odd character and we'll get more into why that is and, and right. why, and why this book exists. Uh, I think a little later, but the, um, just as a, <laughs> and who the hell it's for. Um, but just, uh, just to give you, give you a taste, everybody, the, so it's basically an exploration of what might be considered sort of the, the great works, the, the influential works, the sort of foundational works of, uh, the Western literary tradition. And Mr. Bloom has organized it using a kind of historical schema developed by the, uh, the Enlightenment scholar, uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico, who, who I know next to nothing about. And so I, I had to do like a little digging there and I, I'm afraid I still know next to nothing. Um, but he, uh, it seems like an interesting figure though, because he, he was writing in sort of the late, 
Well, I, I guess the uh, the the early to middle now that I think about it, 18th century, so kind of the sort of the dawning Enlightenment era, and he had kind of he came up with a schema dividing history into a theocratic age, an aristocratic age, and his own incipient democratic age. The the sort of the his idea was that he was writing at the kind of the waning of the aristocratic age and the dawning of the democratic age, and he also contended that eventually the democratic age would lead to. You know, some sort of transitionary chaos time that would then give birth to a new theocratic age. And I, I, boy, I want to stop myself from going into uh, how, how this has echoes of the, the prophetic schema of Joachim of Florence from the 12th century. And, and so you can see everybody like this is going to be, you know, all, all kinds of, all kinds of paths shall be trod down on, on this whole project. But, but anyway, Mr. Bloom sort of, uh, takes that schema and for his own sort of, for his own determination of what what you know what is canon, he he's he's drawing on works from each of those eras, uh, and and he and he sort of tacks on to a, a kind of our own what he calls the chaotic age, as the the democratic age as shaded into the chaotic age, which uh, Mister Bloom um, is sort of I guess roughly equivalent to kind of the modern the modern to contemporary era, uh, kind yeah. of the uh, the late nineteenth century into the twentieth century, and I guess the twenty first century. Yeah. Um, and there's another to, to intervene for five seconds. There, yeah. There's another major reason that he's using Vico in this way. Uh, I'm sorry. This is where uh, we were talking about this. I have a PhD in this stuff, but, um, <laughs> and I, I, I don't, don't. <laughs> No, I, I still consider myself just an educated autodidact. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> he's drawn on Vico because James Joyce famously drew on Vico for Finnegan's Wake. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the structure of Finnegan's Wake. And he seems to be adopting, uh, Joyce's outlook. Apparently, Joyce really did think that that's how history operated. He mm-hmm. said uh, that's how his personal history operated anyway. And in Finnegan's Wake, you have circles within circles within circles within circles. But the overall structure of the book is to start with this kind of theocratic age into an aristocratic age into a mm-hmm. democratic age. And then the whole thing circles back on itself through chaos and destruction back into this hierarchical rebuilding. Um, I think... Bloom is not just choosing Vico because he has a, an affinity for um, esoteric, metaphysical, uh, late Renaissance, early Enlightenment writers, which he does. Mm-hmm. But he's also using it because I think he finds Joyce's sketching out convincing in some way, or at least imaginatively convincing in some way. Yeah, and uh, and well, yeah, honestly, like uh, speaking to that as as you were. Uh as you were just explaining it, it, I realized that it has a lot in common with the Shivaist Hinduism, the Shivaist tradition in Hinduism, yep. the the cycles of you know destruction and 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 creation, etc. Well, that's not exclusive to Shivaist tradition <laughs> in Hinduism, but anyway. Um, yeah. So, but for the actual work itself, the Western Canon by Harold Bloom, uh, he basically he cops out on the theocratic age, and and I think yep. that's probably a that's a good pick because that's what's going to be the least accessible to our modern sensibility. And despite the fact that there is, uh, in the, in the appendix, he actually, you know, includes a, uh, a, the, like the list, basically, like the list of the, the works that he considers, uh, canon and, and their canonicity. And he includes a list for the theocratic age, um, which, uh, which, which is good because that's kind of a, you know, honestly, that's a, uh, a, 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 an interest of mine. If we, if we had to, if I had to pick which of these broad eras in the schema I'm most interested in, it's probably the theocratic age. Um, but, uh, so he, so, but for the meat of the book, he's, he's skipping the theocratic age, going right into the aristocratic age. And, um, and for, for Bloom, the, the skeleton key to all of Western literature, the kind of the, a, a, a metaphor I've liked to use before on, uh, when I, I used to do a, a, a history podcast was that you will sometimes find figures who are lenses that mm-hmm. draw in the rays sort of coming before them and refract the all these rays coming back out and you can you can really take a you can take a look at a, a sort of events surrounding this particular character and you see them as a lens focusing these these rays almost and he for for bloom it is shakespeare and dante yeah and so he uh and really th- throughout throughout the entire book he's he's not only not only are they the central figures in this aristocratic age they're both you know aristocratic age writers they he's basically viewing the entirety of this western tradition through that prism 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, uh, and so, and so really the, and, and, and as, as the book goes on, it's in, in, it's in roughly chronological order that he's addressing, uh, uh these works and, and writing these exploratory essays uh, about them. It's a treasure trove of esoterica. Uh, and, and that's what's, what's very interesting though, is it's a treasure trove of esoterica about these works, which should be the least esoteric of all to, to use, you know, sort of yeah. to, to use the, you know, the term esoteric meaning like, you know, hidden, you know, the, these are the works that everyone's heard of. Right. Know? Right. Or, or should have, I don't know. Right. I'm an educator now. And, um, I'm curious about that. <laughs> Fair enough. But, yeah. uh, these, but these, yeah, these yeah, are the yeah, books yeah. that if you're a giant dork, everyone's heard of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a, that, that seems to be what he values or, or what he claims to value in the introduction. Um, Uncanny strangeness, things mm-hmm. that are so close to home, they're far away, or so far away, they're so close to home. Uh, you forget how weird they actually are when you read them again and again and again, yeah. because they seem so um, already folded into the culture. They've mm-hmm. already changed the culture in a way, or, or, or changed our thinking in a way, uh, that we take it as a given. We take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And then when you go back and look at it, it's very weird. Well, I had I had uh, I had that experience um, a few years ago when uh, I read Moby Dick uh, mm-hmm. for the first time in many many years. Actually, I have to say for the first time, um, yeah. because my own personal history with the text <laughs> is mostly limited to I adored the uh, great illustrated classics version uh, yeah. when I was a boy, uh, and I must have read that thing, you know, dozens of times. Um, and God, those illustrated classics versions of books are, are a bizarre trip in their own way. But anyway, like, oh, yeah. when you have, you know, Moby Dick, everyone's heard of it. It's like, you know, the great American novel. And I went back and actually like, well, I'm going to engage the original text here. And I, and I read it and my God, is it a strange work? And it's strange in a very oh, yeah. jarring way for something written in 1840 or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you like, you didn't, you, you, you did not expect it to have such a, for lack of a better term, modernist flavor and looseness to the language that it does but it's uh it's terrific and and, but i think that's i think that hits on it like there's we we think we know these works we think we know what they're all about we think we know that they're you know stayed dry as dust stuff but when you actually engage with the text there's a reason why they made such an impact they did yeah and i i think his claim is that they can continue to make an impact in in deeper or more fascinating ways mm-hmm. than other forms of, of engagement. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah, which I guess, which I guess brings us to um, where, where you're going to have to do, to do some of the heavy lifting. Why did Mr. <laughs> Bloom feel compelled to, to write such a work? Okay. Well, <clears throat> here's the thing. I, I, I don't like this book. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it's extraordinarily problematic. Um, he, he, Bloom now is sort of persona non grata uh, within the Academy. Um, he, he burned all bridges and I think gleefully to him burned all bridges. Oh yeah. Judging from his introduction, very gleefully. Yes. Yeah. Um, the book was written in, in the early nineties and it was a kind of shot across the bow or not even a shot across the bow. It was like a cannon blast. Um, (laughs) it was, it was crossing the T to keep with our nautical uh, metaphors. There you go. You're better at boats than I am. Uh, (laughs) but it, it was his, it's a it's a rant against most of the institutional ways of reading or concerns with reading um, from about the seventies to the early nineties when he was writing the book. Um, <clears throat> his particular bet bets noir uh, are Marxism, feminism, Lacanian psychoanalysis, deconstructionism, and whatever ism or whatever. Um, sort of theoretical lens was developed throughout the 20th century to read books. Now I'm, I'm calling it a theoretical lens, but I think you would see it as uh, uh, a, an ideological blind spot mm-hmm. that reads strictly for the, the theoretical justification. Does that make sense? Or for the yeah, justification yeah. of the theory? Well, that's, I think that's uh that seems to be one of his um, main I guess well, hobby horses that he's writing is that he views this kind of critical engagement as sacrificing the the actual inherent pleasure of reading 
to a kind of of uh, uh, utility that is attempting yeah. uh, that is attempting to be to be uh, uh, I guess um, uh, utilized. <laughs> to my perspicacity failed me. <laughs> yeah. Look in your shoes. <laughs> Sorry, dumb Simpsons joke, but yeah, it's it's the the he's objecting to the puritanical utilitarian view of literature. Right. Uh, one that would, I think as you said it, justly sacrifice the pleasure of the text, sacrifice the fun, mm -hmm. sacrifice the solitary enjoyment. And that's what it keeps coming back to. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. There's a particular viewpoint that he begins to have in, in the nineties that sort of continues on throughout his later writings. Um, and that's this idea that reading or aesthetic enjoyment, aesthetic pleasure is uh, a sort of bulwark against the necessity of dying. Hmm. Uh, it becomes this kind of existential thing for him. The, the enjoyment or the extension of life uh, in the solitary pursuit of aesthetic pleasure is, is yeah, it's a bulwark against dying. It's right. a bulwark against the necessity of death. We we do it to extend life to the degree that we can within the limited scope or the limited frame that we have. Right. And as much as I hate the ranting, and as much as I find I, because it, this is an ugly book, mm -hmm. it, it's an ugly book. I think we were talking about it before. Part of the ugliness stems from a very palpable hurt. You know, yeah, the, yeah. This is a guy who who feels that some he feels hurt in, in the way this material is being treated or the way it's being read or, or what have you. He feels sort of personally hurt by the, the transformations uh, in reading or, or the institutionalized, uh, institutionalized ways of reading. And I think that gives rise to a lot of the, the, the ranting. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, there's something about it that that I admire. Um, I kind of get his existential point. I, I was going to say like that, the, the way you just explained it, I, I sort of felt like, Oh my God, that is what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, when I, when I say, cause I, I guess what I should also say for background, like I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a very, uh, I'm a very avid reader. I'm a, uh, I'm a librarian by profession though. You know, uh, everyone asks like, Oh, do you get to read all day? No, of course I don't. Like there's, there's, there's stuff to do, but, um, I, I'm in, you know, I'm in a very, you know, books related field and, and that's because right. I'm a very, I'm a very books engaged person. And, and I, and I, I've sort of, I didn't realize I, I had hit upon that similar notion what I, I would think to myself sometimes that like wow this is great i get to you know i especially like to read uh histories and it's like wow i get to extend my consciousness through time to have a dim grasp of what other human beings lived like and and you and yeah i i it is a kind of uh an existential therapy almost yeah the, the, there's an experiential fullness mm -hmm. uh I, I mean this is the way wait <sighs> I hope no one at the schools where I teach ever hear this because what I'm about to do is, is talk about the affect, but there can be, you know, when you're really taken by a text, when you really engage a text or, or the hell with it, when you're really engaging a book, a poem, a play, a, a, a piece of literature, and we can complicate the word literature, but I'm not going to right now. Yeah. There can be this experiential fullness like you, you end with a feeling of profundity. There can be rhetorical power that you give yourself over to, and it is a kind of difficult pleasure, but you get to the end of it and something has happened. Mm -hmm. Something has changed. You feel fuller or there's a recompense. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I think that's, uh, but you're right that, you know, where that hurt comes from, I, I think with, uh, with Mr. Bloom here is that the, and I think I think it's an I've I've hit upon something because the uh, or rather I, I I'm sort of thinking about how to how to verbalize it properly, and and you'll have to excuse me I I am a rube but I think the whole exercise is one in you know Mr Bloom saw the baby being thrown out with the bathwater yeah and this is an extended meditation on what is the baby and what is the bathwater how how are we to think of this baby and bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
why why read? And and I guess this is where we can get into the institutional history um, to talk about just how chaotic the the English department has always been. Yeah. Um, okay. And like I, I told you before, this is kind of my field. And if I get up on the lectern and start getting way out there, just draw me back in. But um, <laughs> I'm going to try to do as brief and and kind of rough and dirty uh, a description of this as I can. Sure. Um, Bloom seems aware of the way that canons are always shifting. Um, there, there are some moments that he has in the introduction where he acknowledges the great works are not always the great works. And this is kind of the interesting thing. He, he takes a stand also against a kind of moralistic, conservative um, reading of literature that, given the state of conservatism today, I don't think is there anymore. But it's this idea that I don't... Well, I think Never it's. Mind. I, well, I think it's. Uh, I think you're right. It's a stand against that kind of that that utility vision of like yeah of, of works that, like you know the the works in the canon should be the ones that edify and 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 bolster this or that you know uh, feeling and and what you know whatever we want to shape in young in people you know yeah. we should only have those works that do that you know this is the classical wisdom right it's been handed down forever and ever and always it does not change these are the great works that do a thing and right. so on and so forth. And that's not what he's going for at all. <clears throat> no. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you have this kind of utilitarian uh, Marxist feminist, so on and so forth, that wants to make uh, certain kinds of claims about works and then use them to support those claims. And honestly, I, <laughs> that's what I'm trained in. And I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of that. Uh, when I teach... Uh, I try to introduce those lenses in, in a lot of ways because I think they're useful lenses. I think they're illuminating. Um, they may not always illuminate the text, but they can illuminate the culture. And when I teach, I try to, um, <clears throat> I try to do both things at once. You can teach the aesthetic engagement. You can show, wow, this is a profound thing. This is something interesting. This is something that opens you up. And you can also teach, well, let's talk about how Longfellow's uh, poem uh, emphasizes uh, 19th century economic structure while that economic structure was under erasure. Or let's take a look at these uh, African-American women poets from the 19th century, and there were some. Uh, let's think about what they're writing, why they were writing it, and why they're under erasure in the early 20th century. So, I mean, you, you can balance these things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, that's that's my caveat, if, if any of my <laughs> colleagues ever hear this nonsense. Okay, so anyway, um, but he, he's, he's constantly aware uh, that um, canons are shifting, and he's also aware that what he has composed is a personal list, an idiosyncratic personal collection of works that he finds illuminating or profound or right. aesthetically engaging. And he he kind of opens the door for, well, you know, if you find something else engaging, if you find it in a way, if you can articulate it, then hey, go for it. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, okay, but to, to get to it, uh, let's go back to the 1870s. <laughs> <laughs> I love I, you um, know what I I love that you're 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 my kind of guy Claude this is great <laughs> okay so the, it it sounds like you know canons canonicity all this stuff the way he writes about it can sometimes make it sound as if these are you know verities that have been there for you know centuries and centuries but the English department has only really been around since the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to read a decent history of it, check out Gerald Graff's uh, book. Oh, shoot, I should have written down the name. Um, but Graff wrote, it, it needs revising because it was written, I believe, in the 70s or 80s. But it, it's an institutional history of how the study of English began, how it's never really quite been able to articulate what it's for. Um it, it would have seemed absurd in the early part of the 19th century to say that we should be reading works in our own language to analyze and discuss them. Why are you doing that? It's in your own language. Read it. Right. <laughs> but, um, throughout the, the 19th century, um, 
a case was being made that there are certain great works or certain difficult works that deserve greater study or deserve a different kind of study. And and uh, just to jump in real quick with that, I, I imagine this would have been tied in very closely with the uh, with the rise of various nationalisms. And, yes. and the and the desire to create national identities, and one of the surefire ways to do that is to select texts and say this is a you know a German text, like the Luther Bible is a German yes. text, or you know the 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 Divine Comedy is an Italian text. It's not just yes, it's not just a, a, Tus- a Tuscan text from you know X <laughs> centuries ago. It's Italy, which yeah. which was a very that was a very. Uh, a very contentious and ongoing project at the time that this is going on. Exactly. Um, the study of English did not arise in England. It arose in the U S hmm. and India. Hmm. Ah, <laughs> um, I love, I love the, that. I did not know that. And I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, you can see that the, I, I don't know enough about the study of English in India and I'm, I'm really kind of curious, but I, I think you can anticipate a kind of colonialist argument mm-hmm. and this kind of, you know, subaltern uh, negotiation. Um, in, in the U.S., uh, the first place to really begin the study of English was Harvard. Uh, and you're exactly right. It did have this kind of frisson of a, a, a nationalist argument. What is our literature? What is our culture? What what is going on? Um, now, this is the fun part. A lot of the old materials that that they produced in the late 19th century, Harvard digitized them, and you can go into the the online archives of the Widener Library and just access them. Anyone has access to them. Yeah. Um, when I was in grad school, you know, I did a whole project uh, on this. And uh, would you like to know um, the the very first exam for the very first Harvard BA in English? I would, yes, I would absolutely love to. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, you had, I think, it was an hour or two hours to write a three page um, analysis or, or a three page response to this question. Describe Hamlet as a gentleman. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's okay. Okay, that that tells you a little bit about what they were looking for, the yeah. values yeah. that that they were trying to, to develop. They were using this stuff to analyze behaviors or to provide structures for understanding how a young man should behave. But I think there's also something in there that's that's a little canny. Um, in describing Hamlet as a gentleman, you're also acknowledging the very bad behavior that he has in that text. I was, I was uh, going to say, I think, I think my answer would be, he was not a good one. You know, yeah. Period. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, to, to, you know, moments or periods or other critics who have sort of lionized Hamlet, it's, it's a much more complicated work. And it seems like they're anticipating some of that complication. But there were things like, you know, the can, what you had to do was, if you were going to study, literature at Harvard in the, the late 19th century, you had to have familiarity with, I think, four Shakespeare plays, um, two novels by Sir Walter Scott, and a handful of essays by Francis, uh, yeah, by Francis Bacon. Hmm. And Bacon was heavily emphasized. Uh, I, I, hmm. I asked my professor at the time, why Bacon? Like, who, who reads Bacon? We would read them now to, to sort of understand the beginnings of uh, empiricism. We'd read, read them, you know, as, you know, this it would, character it, 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 would be, it would be yeah you're right it would be very much in the kind of like history of science would be yeah the field where you would dig into bacon yeah yeah and <laughs> he was like his reply was interesting he said you know if you read bacon bacon has these essays on how gentlemen can do things hmm. it was sort of like instructional wisdom handed down oh rather like, like uh oh what was it? xenophon with yeah. his uh, his sort of history of the education of Cyrus, and it was sort of an, an ironical comment on how the Greeks aren't educating their young gentlemen very well. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Something along those lines. Man. So it, it it begins, and it begins with a lot of contention. There's this real question of what do you do with these with these texts. It also begins the late 19th century in America was this time where the the differentiation between high and low culture was really beginning to take shape mm-hmm. because industrialization, okay, this is where I get on the plate, <laughs> but industrialization had created a situation where a lot of material 
could be distributed. This mm-hmm. is the beginning of mass entertainment. Right. Um, and this is also late 19th century is where all the conspiracies about Shakespeare emerge partially out of this class anxiety. If this is great literature, then there's no way this goofy middle-class dude from Stratford could have written it. It must be an aristocrat. So there's this stratification that begins to take place. And I, I think you can fit this emergence of English as a discipline into that stratification. Mm. All right. So it's in the early part of the ninth or the early part of the 20th century that you get, you know, the canonization of American literature. Um, <clears throat> Hawthorne is picked up. Uh, Emerson is held up as, you know, the great sage. It basically becomes American lit becomes, uh, New England literature. Right, so, right. Uh, and part of that has to do with selling the South on New England after the Civil War. That's a whole other story. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can get into that later. <laughs> when, we, when we do Longfellow, if we live long enough to do Longfellow. Quick, uh, quick, quick point of order. Uh, I, I, would you consider upstate New York part of the greater New England of, uh, of the uh, 19th century? It, I think it was folded into it. Any okay. place with snow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking because, like, you know, like, uh, like, from for my my admittedly limited and autodidactic knowledge of, you know, the 19th century, like, uh, like upstate New York was a real cockpit of American culture and a lot of a lot of stuff going on. Like, this was the the, the Second Great Awakening and all that, yeah. and, a, and a lot of a number of uh, you know, well, so, socialist utopian experiments and whatnot. That's all scary. Centered on there. That's scary. That's frightening. And so that's <laughs> diminished. No, I'm serious. That's yeah. scary and frightening and diminished. Um, one of the things that I was looking at, I was looking at the teaching of literature in, or yeah, the teaching of literature in the early 20th century. Um, my, my professor at the time had this real question. Why was T.S. Eliot reading John Donne? Nobody read Donne. Yeah. Donne's biography was widely read, but why was T.S. Eliot reading the actual poems of Donne? And when you start to look back at the, the, I, I spent a lot of time in the archives at Harvard looking at the um, the scholars' notes, like the teaching notes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you begin to find, and this is really kind of fascinating, is that they were extraordinarily squeamish about religious differences. Hmm. The sex and sexuality in Dunn, not so much, but <laughs> the the kind of – no, I'm serious. Yeah, but the, yeah. the religious controversies, they're like, well, let's keep those at bay. Huh. Okay, so anyway, in, in the um, – in the early 20th century, you, you have this emergence of an American canon. It, it basically erases a lot of the women writers, African-American writers. And, you know, I'm not saying that there were a plethora, but there were some, there were enough that there's a mm-hmm. tradition back there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it tries to make this case for, um, you know, these are the greats that express the nation. Okay, so in the, the 20s and 30s, uh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, to go back a little bit further, in the, the 1900s to about the 1910s, the, the flavor of instruction was evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, you know, intense textual analysis, uh, you, you had figures trying to, who had come out of that evangelical tradition and then switched from studying theology to promoting literature. Um, there's uh, a guy at Yale, William Lyon Phelps, who, uh, or is commonly known as Billy Phelps. He was an English uh, professor who was one of these evangelical professors who promoted this great work and it can touch you and it can do all this other kinds of stuff. So you've got that back there. You've got the charismatic, influential, here's what you do with this stuff. It's a kind of spiritual endeavor in place of uh, or it's it's a secular spiritual endeavor in right. place of an actual spiritual. Yeah. All 
right. So in the, the, um, 20s, 30s, and 40s, with the rise of modernism, this kind of criticism starts to emerge that can anticipate, or not anticipate, it, it, it emerges as a criticism that's able to understand modernism and then gets applied across the board. And here's my hobby horse about modernism, <laughs> is that um, if you take a look at the high modern writers, like Eliot, Pound, Stevens to some degree, Frost to some degree, um, well, okay, Frost is a little tricky, but Williams, Marion Moore, H.D., they began to write poems that could be analyzed in a college classroom because that's how they engaged literature. Uh-huh, uh, yeah. They, they were the first generation to have this kind of engagement, this kind of direct engagement in a college setting. And this is where I think the whole history is, is the movement of lit out of a kind of public domain and into the classroom. Yeah. Um, that I think is the, the most significant shift in the way reading and writing operates, uh, in the 20th century, but be that as it may. So you've got this new criticism, uh, in the thirties and forties, never call yourself new anything because it's going to fade, right? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's used to understand modern texts and it comes from, uh, a kind of reading of T.S. Eliot or a reading of a particular moment of T.S. Eliot's where he wants to say that texts should be impersonal, disengaged, they should sort of exist as objects in space, and they have a kind of internal unity to them, right? Yeah. So it's a kind of, it becomes a kind of mass market way of critically analyzing a text. And the texts that function the best with this are um, sort of Renaissance poetry mm -hmm. and sort of Augustan neoclassicism. So throughout the 40s and 50s, there's this real emphasis on um, reading the text as these kind of contained energies that exist in space that anyone can read, and all you have to show is the formal elements of it to proclaim it either a great text, coherent, like inherently coherent, or this is a failure as a text because it's not inherently coherent. Yeah. Um, that gets mixed in. <laughs> with this other kind of concern uh, of Eliot's for a sort of neo-Christian, high church um, culture of containment. Uh, in the 30s, Eliot wrote a bunch of essays where he basically argues that what we need is capital C culture to contain all of the wild, chaotic stuff that's been unleashed yeah. by modernity. Um whether or not you're a Christian, you should still go to church because that provides the moral structure. Uh, classical literature provides the, the, the political and social structure, so on and so forth. And that lasts until about the 50s, okay? 50s or into the 60s. Yeah. Um, in the 40s and 50s, the GI Bill uh, really created a, created a change in who went to college uh, both racially and class-based. Yeah. Um, everyone who fought uh, had, you know, could use the GI Bill to get into the university and study and, you know, go on to, to whatever they go on to. Um, that changes the nature of the university. That changes who's entering. That changes how they're entering. That changes, you know, the available space. Um, in the 60s, as a kind of, like late 50s, early 60s, as a kind of um, pushback against the, not exactly the failures, but the feeling that, that this Eliotic high Christian capitalist culture wasn't quite doing everything. It, was, it, was, it, it wasn't so much failure as inadequacy. Like it, it, yes. it wasn't up to the task. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of romantic revival. And if you want to look at some of the figures, uh, Northrop Fry is, you know, imperative in that. Uh, M.H. Abrams, Michael Abrams, who died, I believe, in the last five years. He was nearly 100. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and, he was still, and he was still putting out books. Uh, and and his, his two books, The Mirror and the Lamp and um, – Oh, I forget the other one, but he wrote two very, very influential books. They're still the, I mean, to this day, they're still the starting point for anyone getting into romanticism. I mean, they set the, the parameters yeah. extraordinarily well. M.H. Um, Abrams and Jeffrey Hartman and Harold Bloom. 
Plume uh, makes his inroads uh, in the late 50s, early 60s as part of this romantic revival. Um, it, it has to do, I think, with a reaction to the, the stultifying aspects of the 50s, the stultifying aspects of new criticism and that idea or, or that sort of formal structure. And it's this weird, I, I'm kind of fascinated by it. This is speculation. Yeah. But I, I'm wondering if that's the bridge, uh, the sort of first opening up that becomes the counterculture. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. you get in the later 60s, early 70s is uh, a countercultural rejection of a lot of the sort of old verities of, of you know, the, the canon. Um, late 60s, early 70s, you see the rise of theory, more or less. You've got post-structuralism, deconstruction, um, feminism in the 70s, Marxism makes a kind of return. And um, social construction in the 70s and into the 80s kind of sort of becomes the, the order of the day. And if you're, if you're and, and I'm not necessarily denigrating that one more time, that has heavily influenced my life. Right, right. But um, you quickly realize that it's it's one more um, it's one more codified way to read a text, and you get in there, you can do it, and then you can apply it to any other text, and you kind of get bored with it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so in the eighties and nineties. Those are sort of the main things, feminism, Marxism, social construction. In the 90s, you have new historicism and cultural criticism. Cultural criticism kind of wants to make this claim. Again, I'm heavily influenced by cultural criticism. But it wants to make this claim that you can analyze texts that aren't traditional canonical texts to understand how a particular cultural moment operates. So you can look at – Which is fascinating because like that – and to me, maybe maybe I've been influenced by that without without even really thinking of it. But that seems so blindingly obvious, yeah. To me, because one of the uh, you know, I, I sort of I guess I've, I've mentioned I don't know if I, I have mentioned, but uh, my um my my undergraduate degree was in history. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a big history autodidact. I did a history podcast for a couple of years, and and to me, the, always one of the mo- one of the most valuable things to look at for any society, if you have access to it, would be texts that no one really intended to last. And if you can get your hands on some of those, it's really illuminating. And and it's really like, you know, you get your hands on some of those, uh, you know, clay tablets of, you know, uh, you know, Supiluyuma's, um, you know, sheep inventory for the year, you know, 1250 BC that can tell you a lot and, and that can give you a lot of texture and flavor. And, um, that's, that's, uh, but that's very interesting to bring up that that's a kind of, uh, I, I guess it was not a common approach, I guess, before. Yeah. I mean, it's it, to some degree, it's still not a common approach now. Okay. Yeah. So I really hope no one hears this. I, I got taken to task for showing a, a kid's film in class. Uh, I was teaching this American studies class and it, it was basically like, what is culture? That mm-hmm. was kind of the lens that I was using. And so we talked about a, a couple of different things, you know, we, we approached, um, Adorno culture as a kind of conspiracy. Uh, we talked about um, kitsch. We talked about mass culture. We talked about the institutional structures that create high culture. And then I showed Ratatouille, which is this. Um, I mean, I, I think it's the best articulation of the American ideal of culture as middle brow entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's anti-authoritarian because it doesn't want to be too highbrow, but it still needs the um, the the satisfaction of having achieved some kind of elite goal. Right. Uh, it finds monetary success as aesthetic success. It's not too the, – the, the aesthetic um, moment produced is not too complicated, but it's not too bland. It's Right. It's not completely elementary. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some people who are going to get it and that's cool. And there's some people who are never going to get it. And that's cool too, man. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating text to examine <laughs> American attitudes towards high and low culture yeah. because I think the American ideal really is middle brow. Yeah. Um, I got taken to task by a woman who I think was, you know, in her seventies who really did not understand why you would show a children's film 
in an American studies class. <laughs> it, it, it was like, she ranted at me for like an hour and a half. And I was like, I, but just, do, do, this is, this is 30 years yeah. of, of, of criticism. And it just blew my mind that, okay, whatever. So I just shrugged and I'm not teaching that class anymore. <laughs> Can't get in but anyway, so yeah, uh, the, everything, you know, as far as I'm concerned, everything kind of sort of hits ahead with September 11th. Um, mm. To, to pull the curtain aside you know, one more time, I entered grad school in the fall of 2001, and you know I was looking at the syllabi, and it was all lots of heady theory and deconstruction, and you know all this abstract stuff that was you know. And two weeks into the the first semester, two planes took down the World Trade Center. Yeah, and there was this real moment. I mean, it was palpable. But there was this real moment of what the hell are we doing? Yeah, you know, um, the theoretical lenses that we had did not seem appropriate for understanding the moment. The kind of detachment that was there wasn't quite right. You had political engagement that did not anticipate this. That just okay, what are we doing? And and in some in some ways. I don't think anything has taken the place mm -hmm. um, in, in current uh, academic debates. I mean, okay, I've been out of it for about three years. I'm probably never going back. <laughs> uh, I'm a teacher. I'm not an academic. Yeah. But, um, in, in, in a lot of the academic debates, uh, the the theoretical imperative is faded. And I, I was trying to find the essay that I was reading because I had a great essay on academic writing. Um, I don't know any field that hates its own material so much. <laughs> like the true yeah. sign of an English graduate student is that they hate literature. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're sort of trained. I mean, it's the hermeneutics of suspicion, but we're sort of trained to, to, um, hate the texts that we're reading. We have power over them. We dismantle them. We show how they're inadequate and expose the awful ideologies that underlie them. And then spit on them and walk on, and it's right. it's it, it's weird. It's it, it's very very strange. <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's kind of like the 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 broad institutional history. I I still think since September 11th, there's been this reorganization and reshuffling that still hasn't quite come down yet. Yeah, the, the like only it's, thing it sounds yeah. like it's, it's still kind of playing out. Um, and that's and that's very interesting that you, you that we can locate Bloom and specifically the book, the Western Canon in the early nineties within that yeah. institutional history. And, and we were kind of talking a little bit at, uh, again, before recording, or this may have even been like the, you know, the, the chats we've been having, you know, on the, yeah. you know, back and forth, um, about how the, uh, it, it, it's, it's again, Bloom has that kind of romantic, romantical notion that he is rejecting the viewing literature as a utility toward an end, both in that new criticism, um, sort of, uh, God, what fascistic culture shaping sense that, uh, that, uh, I, I don't think Elliot that's far and, off. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, I mean, if Ezra Pound was on board, then, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, but, uh, but also like opposed, like, you know, where, where it was there to shore up the, the traditional power structures, uh, and, and their mores, you know, uh, as, 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 as known to Elliot and the Eliotic sort of cadre versus the, you know, using, uh, literature and literary literary analysis uh, a, a, a to counter those traditional power structures to to illuminate these other you know these other and empower these other constituencies in our society that did not have access to that same power structure and and to and for for Bloom I think that the the crucial thing to understand and the hurt comes from that he feels that that is a, a profound misuse of these texts on and Absolutely. from either angle yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, and, you know, he's, we're mostly focusing, you know, today on the introduction and the, what he calls the elegiac conclusion. Yeah. But th there are parts of the conclusion that really hurt because I, I think he's kind of right. Um, I can't see English as a discipline lasting another 30 years. Uh, you know, prove me wrong, kids. Prove me wrong. <laughs> but the, the, the institutional conditions are such that, the, the humanities cannot justify themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I think there was a moment, you know, I'm not trying to be a romantic, but I think there was a, a moment 
in the 50s, 60s, maybe early 70s, where the humanities were the lead into, instead of majoring in business, you might major in the humanities uh, because there was this idea that, okay, you can understand things, you have uh, classical knowledge, you have so on, mm -hmm. not classical knowledge, but you you've thought through things or you have uh, um, a complicated way of reading and analyzing things. So yeah, of course you can read the spreadsheet. Come on in. Yeah. Um, now as, as the, a, uh, as, as a history, uh, as the holder of a history bachelor's uh, and not, and someone not involved in any sort of academic field. That's right. Everybody, we, <laughs> we humanities types can do anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, I, I, I talk to um, older people I know in their 60s and 70s and, you know, law, um, English and history were the, the path to the law degree. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that way now, but um, that, that was it. And it was the path to other kinds of, you know, employment. It was a kind of general understanding, yeah. um, so on and so forth. That, at least that's the sense that I get. There, there was a period where this kind of material mattered. I mean, Robert Lowell, uh, could use his stance as a famous poet to make social change. Robert Lowell was, was involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, so on and so forth. Can you imagine a poet now using his stance <laughs> as a national poet? No. no. Um, so I, I, I don't think this stuff has the kind of cultural resonance that it did once have. I'm not pointing to a golden age. I don't think... You know, that's the case, but, but I think it's good. And institutionally, um, you know, I talk to my students. I tell a lot of them not to major in English. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you're going to starve. Um, <laughs> right, I had a right. PhD in this. I barely make enough, you know. It's, so it's just, it's, yeah. Oh, that's, uh, I think what's, what's, what's interesting is that there's the, and, and we're hitting upon something. I think for for both you and I, and uh, our our respective uh, academic fields, mine much less developed than yours, um, but also in our in our sort of uh, our our elective, we might call it uh, consumption. That there's it's it's important to recognize this kind of experiential value that that is distinct from any kind of you know more concrete economic usefulness and value yeah, um and i yeah. and i think that that's uh i think you know talking about like you know will the english department exist in another couple of generations and i think that's interesting that maybe we are seeing the humanities move back toward the realm of the autodidact rather mm -hmm. than this kind of institutional framework well that's what that's what i do find kind of fascinating not necessarily about bloom and his arguments but about the kinds of readings or the kinds of reading he proposes, mm -hmm. what was reading like before it was institutional? And it seems to me a little more chaotic. Not, not that institutional reading is, is any less chaotic. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yeah. I'm serious. It's, things are coming and going all the time, but what was that like? And, and that gets, I, I guess that's our, our, our last step here into this question of who Bloom is, yeah. what he was about, what's going on. Um, he's, he's kind of a fascinating character, uh, you know, like him or hate him. And I think he likes to be hated sometimes, <laughs> right. uh, but he, he's the son of, if I remember correctly, he's the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. They spoke Yiddish in the home. Uh, he's from the Bronx. I, I believe it's the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And, um, he, uh, he was apparently a really precocious kid. He was reading things like Hart Crane and William Blake by the time he was 12. Uh, the aim was for him to be a rabbi, but he had a falling out with Yahweh uh, somewhere around the time. <laughs> yeah, but, but um, I, he never gives up on engaging with that. I think one of the more interesting, uh, one of the more interesting assertions that, that he makes oh, in the God. introduction is that is, is this vision of, of uh, Yahweh and it, and I guess we could we can uh, talk about it in some other episode or something. I, I don't. We don't need to get too deep into the documentary hypothesis about the Hebrew Bible. Go for it. Um, but he he makes the claim that the J author the uh, the documentary hypothesis is the the idea that uh, several authors um, and several traditions contributed to the uh, to the composition of the 
Hebrew Old Testament, the Pentateuch specifically, the yeah. first the first five books of the own traditionally ascribed to Moses. But I think you know, as as critical attention to the to the Bible developed in the nineteenth century, it was clear that well, no, of course Moses yeah. didn't write a book about his own death. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, Bloom, uh, uh, makes the argument that one of, one of these contributors, the person known as the J author, um, identified through textual analysis, you know, and sort of common tropes and, and usages and whatnot that, okay, one of these contributors, we can, we can identify them here and there. They're, they labeled the J author for Yahwist, for Jehovah's, um, was none other than Bathsheba herself, <laughs> the famous, uh, famous wife of, uh, David and mother of Solomon, um, yep. which, which is like, you know, damn Bloom, um, just putting your <laughs> chips on the table there with that. Uh, but, but he does make mention that, you know, with the, the J author, that it's a very, you know, the, the Yahweh that, uh, is described as, a, is, is a literary character and that yeah. like, you can almost, yeah. you can almost see the, the sort of the tradition of, uh, the, the Judeo, uh, basically the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity and, and Islam and, and their related, uh, religions as a, as a worshiping this literary character as yeah. invented by Bathsheba. Um, but, uh, anyway, that, that was, that's not really apropos to the conclusion we're trying to make here, but I thought that was like, wow, that was a moment in the introduction where I was like, damn bloom. All right. Like, yeah. I'm, this is a wild ride we're set for. I'm into it. He, he wrote a whole book about that. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It's weird. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So he, he seems to have, um, turned it from, uh, turned his engagement from a spiritual endeavor to a kind of secular humanist endeavor, uh, turning, you know, the secular or turning the Western canon or, or all of these literary works of the tradition into uh, a kind of secular Bible. And, mm-hmm. and I think he's upfront about, you know, making that claim. And that's, that's really what's sort of fascinating. Um, I think the joke was if you go back to the early sixties and look at um, a photo of the Yale English department it's all a bunch of um, <clears throat> wasps, like white Protestant men, one woman and one Jew. Yeah. Bloom was the Jew. And Bloom was the Jew. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to believe now just how how Lily White yeah. all of that, that stuff was. But – and well, hell, I think Yale probably still is. But um, – <laughs> And whatever I believe, but but yeah, I mean, th- there's something about his his being there, which you know he felt on the outs as you know the one Jewish person there. Yeah, but I, I think that also, um, I mean, he's been upfront about that in a lot of his writing. But but I think that provided sort of some of the animus for okay, well, I'm going to look at other stuff that doesn't quite fit this. Neo-Christian, mm-hmm. you know, structure. Excuse me, structure. And he, you know, I think from an early age he was drawn to um, the kind of well to the romantics, mm-hmm. to to the romantics, and and that's what drew him in. This assertion of a kind of human and humane understanding, or at least as he reads mm-hmm. the romantics as opposed to, you know, this kind of theocratic overarching, these are the parameters that we must fit. This is what you must believe, so on and so forth, this coerced uh, culture. Um, yeah, so he set himself in opposition to the kind of Eliotic high church, you know, culture with a C. And, and this is the other thing. If you read enough of them, you start to understand he's not, he's not Alan Bloom. Mm-hmm. He he's not closing up the American mind. He's not you know we're all getting dumber and dumber and dumber, and we need to go back to, to classic texts. He's willing to open himself to other kinds of aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that there's a kind of openness to to his engagement. Yeah. that I I do think is admirable. And and I think uh, as a kind of um, as, as a kind of example of that, and, and one that uh, resonated with with me pretty well. Um, I, for, for my own, uh, you know, re- reading pleasure for the most part in fiction, I, I, I tend toward the, uh, the speculative fiction range, uh, what yeah. you might call, uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, I, I have very little patience for by the numbers genre work anymore. Um, mm-hmm. that, that worked at 12. It does not work at 33. Um, <laughs> uh, but I still, but I still enjoy that, uh, that, that aesthetic and that mode of, of fiction writing. And, um, just as an example of Bloom's openness, 
he uh includes in his canon um uh Ursula K Le Guin the yeah. uh feminist science fiction author most active in the in the 60s and 70s though you know she's still going strong today or not not exactly going strong she's not her output isn't as strong but you know she's still mm-hmm. a figure and and she's one of my absolute favorite authors i she's absolutely tremendous uh, read anything by Ursula K. Le Guin, but as, as an introduction, read, uh, say, uh, A Wizard of Earthsea, which is mm-hmm. terrific for all ages. Uh, no matter how old you are, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. Or say, like, you know, Left Hand of Darkness, The Dispossessed. These are all great oh, works, yeah. and these are all works that Bloom name checks as saying, like, hey, here's great stuff going on that's, it's contemporary. It, and it definitely doesn't fit in that, in the kind of, you know, the stuffy ivory tower reactionary yeah. mode that he has this reputation for. Right. Um, and right. so, right. We, we come, I, I guess, you know, do we come to bury or praise Harold Bloom? I will just have to see as the project <laughs> goes on. Uh, but I think, you know, he has something valuable to say. And it, and if nothing else, I think he provides a valuable framework for a couple of jerks like us to explore some of these, <laughs> some of these, you know, fascinating texts. And yeah. it's, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> and that, that, that really sort of brings us to the list. Um, you know, we're going to have to wrap up in about five seconds here. But <laughs> he he has uh, a list of, I think it's like uh, 27 or so major writers. He starts with Shakespeare and Dante, um, Chaucer, Cervantes, Montaigne and Moliere, um, Milton, Samuel Johnson. That one's going to be a tough one. Goethe's uh, <laughs> Faust. Goethe's Faust is going to be a tough one. I think I'm going to have to bring in um, a friend of mine who's a... a, a a German professor to ex- have you read it? Oh no, no. Uh, oh, oh Lord. The first part is coherent. The second part is okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> Wordsworth and Jane Austen, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, uh, Dickens, George Eliot, Tolstoy, Ibsen, Freud, Proust, Joyce, Wolf, Kafka. He has this weird section on Borges uh, Neruda and the, the Portuguese, uh, poet Fernando Pessoa mm-hmm. and then Beckett. And he sort of ends with Beckett, but apparently at his, his, uh, editors or his publishers insistence, he wrote this list of all the works that, that he considered great. And he has since disowned the list. Mm. That's kind of the interesting thing. He said he sat down one afternoon because they said, well, just write a big list. And off the top of his head, it took him a couple hours and he just wrote down a bunch of books that he thought were, were, you know, worthy in some way, shape or form. There are are books that he regrets on there. There are books that, you know, he would have added so on and so forth. But it's, it's this ridiculous list. It's an idiosyncratic list. It's a very personal list. And, um, you know, at, at some point we're going to have to talk about his theory of agonistic influence, which is a combination of Freud and Kabbalah. But, um, I loved every part of that sentence. <laughs> yeah, but it's just um, anyway. So, so what we're trying to do is uh, take on this list, and and we're going to start with the the major figures that he writes about in the first twenty two chapters. Uh, take them one by one. Um, I think we're going to start by skipping Shakespeare and come back to Shakespeare later because that's going to be its own project in and of itself. Yeah. But next time we're going to start with Chaucer. We're going to look at uh, the Canterbury Tales. We're going to look at the general prologue um, and a couple of the other tales. Pay close attention to the Wife of Bath tale mm-hmm. and the Partners uh, prologue and tale because both of those are sort of where he places emphasis. But we're also going to take a look at some of the dirtier parts because Chaucer is so vulgar. It's a lot of fun, right? I mean, that's really you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm the chump in in the English class. Like, how do you get my attention, man? The body bits of Chaucer. Yeah, you, you gotta love it. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those great, you know, it's, I think it's one of those great moments, like, uh, like, you know, the, trying to get the kids' attention, like, hey, did you know Shakespeare was the first rapper? You know, you could throw in, like, no. hey, did you know, well, right, I just, as an example, like, hey, did you know Chaucer wrote some body shit? Let's look at it, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it should, it should be, it should be fun though. I, I, I like that we are, we're setting off on our own pilgrimage. Sure. With Chaucer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think we've done enough to contextualize this weird book and this weird uh, project that we're engaged on. Maybe next month, a second episode will show up. Yeah. So, 
we'll see how it goes. Daniel, thank you so much for, for engaging me in this ridiculous quest. Uh, I don't know which of us is Don Quixote and Sancho, but um, <laughs> Kafka has this story about how Don Quixote never existed. Sancho made him up because both of them needed the quest. So maybe it's something like that. Probably so. We, we are each other's – we are mutual figments of one another's imagination. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you so much, and yeah. I'll join you in about a month for some Chaucerian ribaldry. Fantastic. All right. Take care. I'll see you then. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.